0: When I first started to follow Jesus around 2004, I joined a house church in East Vancouver. And I very distinctly remember the first time someone prayed for me in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. Has anyone had that experience? (laughs) You're like, right now? Okay. (laughs) She was very well-meaning. I think she was just praying in a way that was natural for her. I don't think she meant to freak me out, but she prayed, Jesus, cover Alistair in your blood. Now, I know this is a less than holy thought, but all I could envision was Stephen King's Carrie, you know? And I, I thought to myself, like, why on earth would you pray for someone to be covered in another person's blood? That is bizarre. And it was a new image for me. And in the moment, it felt grotesque, this expression, the blood of Jesus. It makes many of us in this room feel the same way. You know, for modern ears, for most people, this is offensive, disgusting, obscene. It's, it's violent. Recently, Michael Gunger, a Christian musician and host of the podcast, The Liturgists, came under fire for tweeting this. I simply think blood sacrifice is a very limited and less than timely metaphor for what the cross can mean in our culture. Now, I'm sympathetic to what he's saying, but I disagree with him, and for a few reasons. Blood sacrifice has always been the central metaphor of the cross. And it's more than a metaphor. When we say the blood of Jesus, we're talking about his actual death, his actual blood being shed on the cross. And so this isn't a metaphor, it's a reality. And it's a reality that isn't limited or untimely. Rather, it's a reality that's unlimited and timeless because it has gripped Christian lives and imaginations for centuries and the millennia. So if we want to understand who Jesus is, if we want to come to terms with our need for him to be our great and faithful high priest, which is the major theme of this book that we've been exploring the past couple weeks, then we have to wrestle with this reality that our great and faithful high priest has made a sacrifice and the sacrifice was himself. He shed his own blood for us. And we have to acknowledge that there is no way we could ever have approached God unless Christ did this for us. So the guiding question for us this morning as we work through this passage is this. Why do we need the blood of Christ? Why do we need the blood of Christ? If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, uh, please take one of our great Bibles home with you and everything is also going to be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we read, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of presents. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar, altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, And the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. That was a lot of detail, in my opinion. But (laughs) these preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into that first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You may recall that last week we considered how Jesus as our great and faithful high priest established a new covenant for us, a new covenant in which our sins are remembered no more. But now the author goes back to the old covenant, the old way in which God related to his people. And once again, we find ourselves in the wilderness, You might recall from Hebrews chapter four that this has been a major theme in his book, that this is never far from the author's mind, this time in the wilderness where Israel had been delivered out of Egypt, but they are waiting for the promise of the new land. The author reflected on how they lived during this time and how their hearts were prone to hardening and rebellion and leaving the ways of God. But that's not what is on the author's mind this time. He brings up the wilderness, and now he wants us to focus on the tabernacle, the place of worship for ancient Israel while they lived in the wilderness. And we're given a brief primer about its structure. Uh, there was the holy place and the most holy place. Uh, all the priests, they operated regularly in the holy place, you know, offering daily sacrifices, doing the daily rituals. This was their place of work. But then the most holy place was set apart. It was the holy of holies. It was adorned with sacred items from Israel's history. So as you moved more into the heart of the tabernacle, it became more and more sacred. And as you got into that sacred center, only one person could enter, and only once a year, the great and faithful high priest. And this was on the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. And the author of Hebrews, he stresses to us in verse 7, that the, the high priest, he couldn't enter into this most holy place without blood. There was no going in there without blood. So this annual festival, the Day of Atonement, it required enormous preparation. This was the one day of the year that God wiped the slate clean for all of Israel. A fresh start, sins forgiven. For the high priest, the day began with a bath. And not just any bath, a public bath where people watched to make sure he was clean enough. And then he dressed from head to toe in white linen to signify his purity. So he was physically clean. His garments were clean. He was a symbol of purity. But then the high priest had to make a sacrifice. He sacrificed an animal, shed the blood of an animal, to atone for his own sins. And then he would head into the most holy place and offer that blood on the mercy seat for his own sins. And once that was done, then he went back out bathed all over again, changed once again, sacrificed an animal once again, but this time for the sins of the people. And the people watched with bated breath because the high priest represented them. He was cleaning himself. He was purifying himself symbolically on behalf of all the people. He was their representative and he was going into the sacred place. One scholar writes, when the priest came out of the presence of God still alive, there went up a sigh of relief like a gust of wind. It's a dangerous thing to go into the presence of a holy God. In the future, they started tying ropes around the waist of the high priest just in case so they could drag him out. I believe they called these the ropes of assurance. The the main thing the author of Hebrews wants us to keep in mind is that the high priest couldn't do any of this without blood. He couldn't do any of this without blood. And the blood had to come from a flawless animal, an animal without blemish, the very best of the best of the best of your animals. And this blood was then sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is this place of supreme glory and exemplary holiness. And it's symbolically guarded by angels that they made out of gold, but it's supposed to remind them that the angels of the Lord are actually in this place. And there the blood was offered for one reason, to make atonement for sins, to plead for mercy, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for the slate to truly be wiped clean. So year after year, the nation was reminded, if you want to be in the presence and glory of a holy God, you need blood. Without blood, there's no atonement. Without blood, there's no forgiveness. Without blood, you can't enter into this most sacred place. And here we think, this is just the problem with ancient religions. The gods are angry and they're out for blood. They're bloodthirsty. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, he doesn't appear to be any better. So, why is blood so important? Why is God out for blood, so to speak? Let me say this, and let me say it clearly God is not bloodthirsty. We have to understand this, and I'm going to try my best to help us understand this. But still, if God is not bloodthirsty, why require blood at all? In the modern and ancient world alike, if you're bleeding, it can be a problem. It's usually a sign of a problem. Small cuts, nosebleeds, whatever. It needs to be attended to. If you're gushing blood, you're off to the ER, stat. But in the ancient world, if you're gushing blood, in all likelihood, it is game over for you. Blood in the ancient world is often a sign, like it is today, of a serious problem. Death is on the way. It's impending. And so having to shed animals' blood again and again reminded the Israelites the weight of their problem. They had a serious problem on their hands. The outcome of their entire way of life is death. Death that came into the world because of sin. You might recall that after Adam and Eve chose to distrust God, to trust themselves, to question God's goodness, the first sin after that is what? Cain murdering Abel. It's an explicit sign that the outcome of sin, the outcome of rejecting God's goodness, is death. And humanity was the first to shed blood, not God. Yet, in the Hebraic mindset, blood also has positive connotations. And this needs to be stressed. Blood symbolized life, and it does today. That's why we have blood drives. That's why we're offering blood, because we want to give life to other people. We read in Leviticus 17.11, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's blood that makes atonement for one's life. So while blood was a sign of death, it was also a sign of life. And in the shadow of death, living in a world where there's decay, living in a world where you know you're going to die, living in a world where you know death is the outcome of sin, God also shows that he wants to preserve life. You shed this blood, it reminded you of death, but it also reminded you that God wants to give you life. Symbolically, the animal was bearing the sins of the nation. And with each and every sacrifice, again and again, the ancient Israelites were being reminded, "Forgiveness that leads to life is not cheap. If they want to receive life, it's only through death. blood needs to be shed." But the problem with the system was it was all limited, because the blood of animals could never actually wash away sins. The author's going to say in chapter 10, "It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And don't think that this is some innovation on his part. He backs this up with quotations from the Psalms and from the prophets. They knew that the blood of goats and bulls and all these animals couldn't actually forgive our sins. So what should shock us is that God was willing to accept animal substitutes although it made no logical or moral sense to do so. He was willing to show mercy even when the offering was not sufficient. And year after year, God allowed this insufficient process to be repeated. And year after year, God gave mercy, disproportionate mercy, the death of one animal for the entire nation. He showed mercy again and again, but the system had its limits. It was never God's final plan. This was just a shadow. This is not how things would ultimately be made right in the world or how people would be made whole. Which is why the author continues in verses 9 through 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Here's the problem as the author sees it. Under this old arrangement, the sacrifices, they can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And it's a big problem. Think about Shakespeare's character, Lady Macbeth. Her conscience drove her crazy. She walked around day and night with blood on her hands, but not physical blood. She had washed off the blood from the murder, spiritual blood, blood that stained her conscience. And in torment, what does she cry out? out, out, damn spot. And many of you know what this is like. You know what it's like to carry guilt in your conscience. You might not be losing your mind yet, but you know the disorder of guilt. Guilt for something you did. Guilt for something you didn't do, but wish you did. Guilt for something you think you did. Guilt that you're doing better than someone else or guilt that you didn't do more. And guilt rises up for a lot of reasons. And we feel it simply from being in this world and being in relationships with others. And when we apply this reality to God, our guilt only amplifies. And some of you here, you don't need this explained. You're in this space. God requires so much of you and you're always falling short and you feel guilt. You're never serving enough, giving enough, caring enough, sacrificing enough, and the demands of God outweigh your ability to follow through, and you feel guilt. And no matter what you do, no matter what actions you take, it doesn't alleviate this internal reality of guilt you feel in relationships and toward God. You never measure up. And if you're in this space, your guilt, when it lays heavy on your conscience, can cause you to wonder if God really does accept you if you really could stand in his presence. Your guilt quickly turns into negative self-talk, self-hatred, and condemnation. And we're gonna talk about this more in a little bit. But first, I wanna to talk to those of you right now who are smart, modern people, and who are objecting to this archaic notion of guilt. Now, sure, some people feel guilt, but some people are also pathological. We're modern people now. Nobody can make you feel guilty unless you let them. You decide if you feel guilty. You determine your own standards. You write your own scripts. No one can make you feel guilty unless you let them. The novelist Franz Kafka wrestled with and was tormented by his conscience. And he was plagued as a hypochondriac, an insomniac. He he was cripplingly indecisive, terrified by life, obsessed with death. And he tried to channel his neuroses into art. But as one journalist writes, and I love this, because it's so clearly British, uh, you can't really read Kafka with your morning tea. And anyone who's tried to read Kafka knows the truth of this statement because his conscience made for very dark novels. He'd write about torture and describe it in detail. And he'd come up with these gross, uh, gross, grotesque creatures. He would describe in detail the lives of bugs. And it was always against the backdrop of utter hopelessness. Because for Kafka, life was purposeless, meaningless dark and empty. But in a more honest moment in one of his journals, Kafka confessed this, the state in which we find ourselves is sinful, but quite independent of guilt. We feel sinful, but not guilty. What he means is this. Yes, we're modern people, and we've lost this category of guilt, Because we're relativists. So who can say what is right or wrong? You have to determine that for yourself. But if everything is relative, if there's no transcendence, no God, no power out there, no divine set of laws or rules that will judge us, then sure, there's no real reason to feel guilty ever. It's just a construct. But if this is true, Kafka is saying, then there's also no purpose, no meaning, no point in our existence. There's only the despair that he so brilliantly articulates in his novels. And his point is this. Even in this bleak existence, even though we've tried to remove the categories of guilt, we can't shake off the shame, the sense of condemnation, the sense that when we do wrong things, when we fall short, when we let people down, there's really something substantially wrong with what we've done. Try as we may, try as we may to remove the guilt or to create categories that'll let us do whatever we please. We can't seem to escape it. Our conscience won't let us. And so Kafka laments that we still feel sinful in a meaningless world, quite apart from guilt. What a sad human condition. You live in a purposeless world and yet you still feel sinful. And according to Kafka, in his own writings, the source of guilt or at least the feeling of guilt, is that we are in debt to something or someone outside of ourselves for our existence. Guilt is being indebted to something or someone outside of ourselves for our existence. And it's really quite brilliant. What he's saying is that guilt is the last possible link you have to transcendence to divinity, to God. You remove guilt, and you're losing that sense of connection that your life takes place on the stage of something more, something important, an objective world with laws and rules about how God wants it to flourish. And if we lose guilt, we we lose everything. We lose purpose. We lose meaning. We lose everything. We remain sinful without guilt. And so this issue of conscience, what to do with your guilt, what to do with your guilt, remove it altogether, dwell on it. This is the heart of our passage. The ancient Israelites dealt with it again and again, with sacrifices, with blood, but it was a temporary fix. Guilt returned the next day. Modern people, we're trying to deal with it by denying any reason to feel guilty or by going to psychologists and counseling, you know, to work, to develop new patterns of thinking to escape guilty feelings. So much of modern psychology is trying to help people live for whatever pleases them without guilt. That's enlightenment. But neither approach can purify our conscience before God. They might help temporarily, but as the author of Hebrews writes, they cannot make our conscience perfect. Whether you offer sacrifices, whether you deny guilt, altogether you cannot make your conscience perfect. And now in light of Christ, the author of Hebrews sees what can finally put our conscience at rest. He finally sees that the reason we have guilt is that there's an objective thing wrong with us. This isn't just about us having feelings of guilt. It's that our guilt is actually appropriate because we're unfit to stand in the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews sees that God, yes, instituted this old system, but it was a sign pointing away from itself to something better. In verse 10, he says, the old system was in place until the time of reformation, which brings us to the heart of our passage, verses 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once and for all into the holy places. What he's saying is he entered into heaven, not by means of the blood of goat and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus Christ appeared and reformed everything. He's the high priest of good things, the author says, that have come. These good things have arrived. And we see still it all hinges on his blood. Why the need for blood? If the blood of goats and bulls wasn't sufficient, why blood at all? Why doesn't God just forgive us? Why does he need the blood of his son? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a helpful perspective on this. Uh, If you're not familiar with Bonhoeffer, he was a theologian and pastor uh, who died resisting Hitler during World War II. And in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote, If you've ever really forgiven somebody, forgiven some real wrong, all forgiveness is suffering. If you say, I forgave and I didn't suffer, it wasn't really that serious of a wrong. But if you've ever really, truly been wronged and you've forgiven it, then you have suffered. Because all forgiveness is a form of suffering. Suffering. If someone has wronged you deeply, there's an indelible sense of debt, an injustice, a feeling you can't just shrug off. And once you sense this deep injustice, this debt, there are only two things you can do. One is you can make the perpetrator pay. You can find ways to make the perpetrator suffer and pay down the debt. Or two, you can forgive. Real forgiveness is a form of suffering. It involves pain. So when it comes to our guilt before God, the guilt we feel in light of our unfitness and unworthiness because of our sin to stand in his presence, God has two options. God can pour out his justice, but then we all suffer. Because whether we have explicitly fallen short of the glory of God, we are all implicitly a part of the system and are guilty. If God pours out Justice in an unjust world, we all suffer. But if God forgives, God suffers. And the relief, the good news of this passage is that God forgives. God chooses the way of suffering. And God, He cannot welcome us into eternity, into our true home where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. He can't do it without pain, it involves blood but not our own blood. He doesn't demand our blood. He doesn't do it with the blood of bulls or goats. God himself, we must remember, was in Christ, offering himself as the sacrifice. God offers his own blood. And once again, he demonstrates his disproportionate mercy. Life for us, eternal life for us, comes through death for him. But why would Jesus do that? Jesus doesn't do it under coercion. He doesn't do it out of some obligation. He doesn't do it because the Father is cruel. He does it freely and out of love. Out of love, Jesus chose to bleed for us to demonstrate both the cost and power of his forgiveness. Jesus bleeds for us to demonstrate the cost and the power of his forgiveness. The cost is his blood, his very life, experiencing death for us. But the power is our eternal redemption. The cross takes care of something. We have to understand this. The cross actually achieves something. As the author says, Jesus secured an eternal redemption with his blood. It's literally a release on payment of price. Jesus has paid the price to release us from death And there's lots of metaphors that we can employ. He's released us from death, from sin, from decay, from the weight of our guilty consciences. And so our guiding question, why do we need the blood of Jesus? Is answered in verses 13 and 14. Look at this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is the body, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Nothing is more valuable than life. Christ laying down his life is the ultimate demonstration of the dire nature of sin and its great cost. But it's also the profound revelation of God's unfathomable love for us, his outrageous mercy towards us. Think of it, try thinking of it this way. If you had a friend who said to you, I love you so much, so much. Let me show you how much. And they jumped in front of a train. What would you think? My friend's a fool, a lunatic. They went mad. Their action wouldn't strike you as particularly loving or amazing because there was no necessity for what they did. They just died for no reason. But if your foot was caught in the track, the train's coming, it's impending, and your friend not only frees your foot, but pushes you out of the way at the last possible minute and saves your life at the cost of their own life, what would you say about your friend? What love? And you would probably begin to live your life as if it's on borrowed time because you knew death was impending, but someone else died so that you can live. It would change you. In the same way, if Jesus died and shed his blood just to forgive us so our consciences can be less burdened by guilt, that doesn't really make sense. That does seem excessive that he would die just so we can have an easier conscience. But if Jesus died to fix an objective reality, an impending danger, a real threat to the world and our lives, what great love. What great love. And that's precisely what he did. And when Christ's sacrifice grips us, when it warms our hearts, when it captures our attention, when it speaks to our souls, when we see the fundamental necessity of it that as sinners we could never enter into the holy presence of God, but because Christ died for us, we now can. The author writes, it purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's why we need the blood of Christ. It restores our ability to be in a living relationship with God. We need his blood because only his sacrifice can change our interior lives. Yes, it'll alleviate our guilt because we're profoundly forgiven again and again and again. But our desires are remodeled too because we discover new life coursing through our veins. Our old blood was contaminated. It was leading us to death. But now we have the blood of Christ. We have eternal life. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, which is just fun to say, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, is an example of this for us. He was born in the 18th century in Germany. And one of the most formative moments in Zinzendorf's life was in the art museum at Dusseldorf, where he saw a painting of Domenico Fetti entitled, Behold the Man. It's a portrait of Christ with the crown of thorns pressed down on his head, blood running down his face. And beneath the portrait were the words, I've done this for you. What have you done for me? All of his life, Zinzendorf looked back to that encounter as utterly life-changing. He wrote, these wounds were meant to purchase me. These drops of blood were shed to obtain me. And he could never get over it. He was not his own. He was bought at a price. And so he lived with radical love and devotion for the one whose blood was shed for him. If you're not a history buff, Zinzendorf founded a community of faith called the Lord's Watch. And they became a part of the Moravian Church, which has become known for its unparalleled missionary zeal. This small little group of 300 people, some historians say, have defined modern-day missions more than any other group. And the fuel of their movement, because of Zinzendorf's passion for this blood that has been shed for him, was a 24-7 prayer movement that went uninterrupted for 100 years, multiple generations a follower said, I will take an hour of the day to pray. And they had prayer going 24-7. And as a result, this little group from Germany like sent out missionaries all around the world to the West Indies, to Greenland, to Lapland, to Turkey and North America. They were utterly and radically dedicated to making Jesus known. And one of my favorite stories about the Moravians and their crazy travels is that of John Wesley. John Wesley was uh, a, a A reformer. I mean, he was someone who was bringing profound renewal to the Church of England. And he went to America, and it was a disaster. And we can talk about that, because it's hilarious. But on the way back, on the way back, Wesley was in a brutal storm. And they were afraid the ship was going to go down. And he's fearing for his life. And the little Moravian group is on the boat with him, singing hymns to God. And Wesley wrote in his journal, what faith have I had? And after meeting the Moravians, he went to a Bible study and he heard the gospel really for the first time and he calls that moment his conversion. Now he had been a Christian up to that point. But this little group had seen the blood of Christ and it gripped them in such a way it radically altered the trajectory of their lives. You see... If you understand, if it grips you what Jesus has done for you, it doesn't mean that you have to go out and be a missionary overseas because guess what, people? The mission field is here now. The mission field is here now. It doesn't mean that you you have to become a pastor or professional uh, missionary. What it means is that you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm not my own today. I belong to another. I've been bought with a price. That'll change the way you do housework. That'll change the way you raise kids. That'll change the way you relate to coworkers. That'll change the way you relate to other people's suffering. That'll change everything because you don't get a guide the ship anymore. I'm not my own today. I belong to another. I've been bought with a price. Does that even appeal to you? Or do those words strike you as a weighty obligation? if you're still under the impression that you cannot live up to God's demands and therefore God won't ever accept you, you haven't understood the blood of Christ. Not entirely. Because the blood of Christ says, yeah, you could never live up to the demands of God, but God is so loving and merciful that he has found a way for you to stand in his presence without blemish. It's not about anything you have to do. It's about everything he's done for you. Or if you're under the impression that you can live well enough so that God has to accept you if there ends up being a God, you still haven't understood the blood of Christ. There's no way to enter into God's presence without that blood. You will never be fit enough, clean enough, perfect enough to stand in God's presence without Christ interceding for you. Could this thought appeal to you? If you saw that Christ shed his blood, not hypothetically for you, but for you. As Nikki Gumbel says, and I love, love this, if you were the only person on earth, Christ still would have gone to the cross for you. When this grips you, you'll wake up with joy saying, I'm not my own. I want to live for Christ. Because now, and what's revolutionary about the author's saying, is we have better access than any earthly high priest ever had. Ordinary people like you and I, imperfect as we may be and can see about ourselves, are perfected in Christ and we can stand in the presence of God with boldness and confidence because the mercy seat has become a throne of grace and God is always offering us grace and mercy in our time of need. That will be your fuel in the morning. That will change you. And there's nothing you have to do except receive this disproportionate mercy. And when you do, it will grip you and it will change the fabric of your being. It will refine you until the one desire of your heart and mind is to follow Jesus as you serve the one true living